Tonight we're talking about communication and documentation. How many things through the passage of time and history have gone wrong because people can't communicate? Somebody give me one example. 9-11. Battle of Gettysburg. Somebody give me something else. Because miscommunication messes up a whole bunch of things. I promise you, I could whisper something in Jacob's ear and tell him to pass. Y'all have seen that little trick before, right? By the time it gets back to, to Brianna, it'll be something completely different. I promise you. If I had a little more time, we'd do it just for kicks and grins. But we ain't got time. So we're going to talk about communication and documentation. Both are very important. How many different people will you have to be able to communicate effectively with? All of them. That's right. So I think somebody gave me that answer the other day too. But it's just as accurate today as it was then. All of them. I mean, first and foremost, you have to communicate with your patient. You have to communicate with your partner, your bosses, maybe other people at the station, law enforcement, nurses, doctors, um, patient's family. Uh, you just, you have to be able to express a concise thought. And then you have to document it, okay? So we're going to talk about all that. Communication is the, trans- is the transmission of information to another person. You have verbal and nonverbal communication. Which one speaks the loudest? Don't you ever forget it. Don't you ever forget it. Nonverbal speaks the loudest. I mean, if I look at y'all and I say... Or if you're, if you're in somebody's home. Hey, I'm Jeff Danny, paramedic. I'm here to help you. What can I do for you? Or if you're staring at the floor like, Hey, look, man. I, I sure do want to help you. What's wrong? What did I really tell you right then? Don't give a crap, right? Don't want to be here. That nonverbal communication is always the loudest. And don't ever forget that. Effective communication is an essential component of pre-hospital care, hospital care, post-hospital care. It's an essential component to life. You just have to be able to communicate with people. Uh, Verbal communication skills are important. They enable you to gather critical information. Especially on some of these medical calls, it's, it's almost like a little bit of an investigation. You're, you're following that patient assessment, those patient assessment skills that you'll build uh, as a part of this class. But you still have to be able to speak, listen, communicate, coordinate with other responders, and again, transfer your care over to the nursing staff, the doctors at the hospital. Documentation is the written part of a patient's permanent medical record. Is it a legal document? It is. Hey, and let me tell you, let me tell you a little clue. Well, let me just ask y'all, what do most law enforcement officers have on their shirts anymore or on their uniforms? Body cams. So if you're an AEMT and you document, hey, uh, man, we never got on scene, no patient contact made. But then there was a law enforcement officer on that scene. Could that catch up with you? Absolutely. It's a legal document, and you better not lie on a legal document. Documentation is the written part of the permanent medical record. It demonstrates the appropriate care was delivered, and if it wasn't written down, you didn't do it. You did not do it. It also helps others who may participate in the patient's future care. And just a quick example I give with that is like if you uh, check a patient's blood sugar, Maybe you did it three times during the course of the transport, but you didn't document it. So therefore, when you hand that report off to the nurse and they look on there and it's not on there, what's the first thing they're going to do? Take a blood sugar. So now the patient gets poked an additional time. That's information that's not gathered. It's not collected for that patient. It will affect their care at the hospital. Uh, complete patient records, guaranteed proper transfer. It's the continuum of care. It's, it, it really is like a big old chain. Everybody is a link in that chain. Um, 
And that's all part of properly passing over to the next link, if you will. Complete patient records also help to comply with requirements of health departments, law enforcement agencies, and fulfill your organization's administrative needs. You just can't say it enough. And it, it is a... Most patient care records, the PCRs, patient care records, most of them are in the electronic format now, right? So, I mean, there's a few places that still have the paper, but you're looking pretty much at EPCRs, electronic patient care reports. Sony Tough Books or whatever or some sort of Surface Pro or something, whatever your agency uses. But all of this data is collected on a computer now, and you can even sign the screen. Or the patient can sign the screen and all that good jazz. Um, it can be fairly aggravating. It can be fairly time-consuming sometimes, too. But it's... It's almost as important as actually treating the patient. Because what you do or don't do on that report, who does that take care of? You, the provider. That is your protection. So take the time. I'm not going to go on about it much, but just take the time to do it right. Because that takes care of you. Radio and telephone communications. Uh, how important is it when you get to work in the morning to make sure your portable radio is fully charged? That's your link to the world, right? If you're out in the middle and crap starts selling for a dollar a pound and you can't reach nobody, that's pretty bad, right? Okay, there's... A lot of places around here that has a lot of old abandoned wells out there too, right? Fall in one of them, and you ain't got your radio. So, it's your link. Basically, is your link to the world. Other EMS folks, fire department, law enforcement, um, but communication systems is like anything else. You have to know what you have, how it functions, and. Um, that's just going to be to your best use. You should be able to, with your eyes closed, start at the first setting on your radio, on your portable dial, and know, all right, that's fire department dispatch, this is fire department ops, this is TAC 1, TAC 2, TAC 3. You need to know all the way around. You need to know what they are. Use uh, therapeutic communication uses verbal and nonverbal communication techniques and strategies. It's supposed to help encourage your patients to express how they feel. And, and again, you know, a lot of these people, you might be with them 5, 10, 15 minutes at the most, but you really will have to build somewhat of a rapport with them to get all the information that you need to get. Um Again, age, body language, clothing, culture, educational background, eye contact. Are there some cultures that don't allow the eye contact if you're of opposite sex? Yes, there are. So you need to understand what you're dealing with there. But All right. The Shannon Weaver Communications Model. That's when a sender takes a thought, encodes it to a message, and then sends the message. Okay? Then the receiver gets the message, decodes the message, and then has to send feedback to the sender. This is the Shannon Weaver communications model. Any communication or any noise, any words, anything that doesn't add to the message... What do we call that? Noise. And you hear it on the radios all the time. People just on and on and on, making up words even. All right? That's noise. Any sig uh, Anything that distracts or doesn't add to the overall message that the sender is sending is called noise. All right. Why is feedback important, though? 
Okay, so if I say 704, the engine one, I need you to cover zone. And then engine one comes back on and says, I'm clear. Do I really know that they're clear? They should say what? It, engine one is clear on covering zones. Repeat it back. That's the proper feedback. That way I know that they were clear on covering zones. Does that make sense? And that's the Shannon Weaver communication model. And anything that doesn't add to the message is what? Age, culture, personal experience shapes how a person communicates. Um, that's what I was talking about a minute ago. Your body language, eye contact, greatly affected by culture. Tone, pace, volume of language. Um, it's all going to add to the perceived importance of that message. What I tell y'all preparatory was French for? Have I lied to you? Right. I think I gave y'all these words already, didn't I? Ethnocentrism and cultural imposition. You need to know the definition of these two words. Ethnocentrism is when you consider your own cultural values more important or more accurate or whatever other uh, whatever than, than other people's. When you consider your own cultural values more important than those of others. Ethnocentrism. Now, when you start to force your values on others, that's called cultural imposition. Which one of them two fellas you think you want to hang out with? The guy on the top. You'd probably have a good time with him, wouldn't you? That follows that fella right there, he's plotting somebody's demise, ain't he? Or maybe he just got some really bad news. It's like a younger horse gun. <laughs> that one? Yes. Hey, you never noticed that. Like when he was just when he had the robotic legs and everything. Okay. Okay. This is what I was talking about with the body language. Body language provides more information than words alone or, or words in general. Facial expressions, body language, and eye contact are physical cues. This fella just don't want to be messed with for whatever the reason. Maybe he's just mean. I don't know. But something's going on. That guy you can have a conversation with. That's just human nature. All right. Here's some more little terms you just need to know and these distances you just need to know. If you start paying attention to proxemics, just in general conversation, let me ask you a question. You're at work, school, wherever, you at the store you go to, whatever it may be or whatever, and somebody walks up that you don't know. And they get like right up in your grill. How's that make you feel? Uh, Uncomfortable, right? So you're going to take a step back, right? And then what if they like get close again? Physically moving back. There you go. That's called proxemics, okay? Basically, oh, see, I, I didn't lie to you. Noise is anything that dampens or obscures the true meaning of a message. That's a crazy place to put that, ain't it? Because there's the Shannon Weaver. Four slides later. Anyhow, proxemics is the study of space and how distance between people affect communication. All right. Intimate, your intimate space is less than 18 inches. If someone's like within 18 inches, they're in your intimate space. And if you ain't intimate with them, that, that makes you you're uncomfortable. 
Time for somebody to take a step back. Whispering, touching. Again, a lot of usually folks who have to be invited to be that close. Your personal space is 18 inches to 4 foot. Conversations with close friends, family. Social space is 4 to 10 feet. Those are just your acquaintances. You know them. But that's about it. And in public, 10 to 25 feet. That's how we interact with strangers. If, if you don't believe this is true, you wait the next time somebody, like I said, they really get up in your space and you don't know them like that. It's real. Did everybody have that? Asking questions is one of the most fundamental functions of the AEMT. Now, you've got open-ended questions and you've got closed-ended questions. If you ask a closed-ended question, what type of answers do you, do you typically elicit? Yes, no answers, right? Just very short answers. And sometimes that might be good enough, but sometimes you might need to try to dig for a little more information. That's the open-ended questions. Uh, that those, those responses require a little more detail. Okay? Um, and again, especially on the medical type calls when you're having to investigate a little bit harder, the open-ended questions usually are good ones to ask. When, when could that get you hung up? If you get to asking open-ended questions and somebody's just on and on, right? Not even being funny, but there's some people that will call for a fire truck or an ambulance because they have no family left. And they're a little bit lonely. They want somebody to talk to. That's just a fact. It's sad. I get it. But it's true. You might have to go back to some of them closed-ended questions once you kind of get what you want, right? Just, uh, just to kind of shorten the responses. Different communication tools, facilitation, silence, reflection, empathy, clarification, confrontation, interpretation, explanation, and summary. Somebody look in the book and tell me what they mean by facilitation as a communication tool. Okay, what? Encouraging the patient to talk more and provide more information. So you're saying they should talk more, provide just a little bit more information? Huh? I was using facilitation. <laughs> I wasn't questioning you, buddy. All right, silence. Somebody tell me how silence can be a communication tool. Right, listen, if you're going to ask a question, and you're going to ask a bunch of questions, Give them time to answer. Good Lord gave you one mouth and two ears, right? Why? Why do you think? Listen, you should probably listen about twice as much as you talk. Reflection. What is that? Do I? Restating what they said back just to kind of confirm. Empathy. I can't hear you. Being sensitive. Being sensitive. Okay. Well, that, I, I've always been told, you know, and it, it really is true. Sometimes they don't care what you know till they know that you care, right? Clarification. What does this book say about clarification? Confrontation. Go ahead, Luke. Making the patient who is in denial or in a mental state of shock focus on urgent and life critical issues. Interpretation. Okay, summing it up. Explanation. And then summary. I think we all know what to summarize, what that kind of means. 
All these are different communication tools. But it's just like, I guess when we get to IVs, you'll develop your own, you know, we'll learn the fundamentals and the basics, but you'll learn your own style of doing and maintaining IVs. You communicate the way you communicate naturally and what's comfortable with you. So, but those are different tools that you can use. When interviewing a patient, consider using touch to show caring and compassion. Use consciously and sparingly, however. Avoid touching the torso, chest, and face. Don't get carried away with it, right? Could you uh, use too much touch and get in trouble? Yeah, don't don't be a creeper. But just right here, you know, the shoulder, maybe the back of the hand for a second. But don't get creepy. Some interview techniques to avoid include giving unsolicited advice. I will never forget a paramedic that I used to work with. He used to love doing that right there. Giving that unsolicited advice. So you had a seizure today. And I, I, I'm seeing this one. And I can tell you the, almost the exact address. I can tell you everything, but I won't. So you had a seizure today, huh? Okay, all right. Did you take any medicine on a regular basis? Oh, you take seizure medication. When's the last time you took it? Well, oh, you hadn't had it in two days, huh? Well, there's your problem. <laughs> you need to take your medicine. That's not... I mean, just like that. Just like that. So don't give unsolicited advice. Don't do it. Sometimes people can't afford their medicine. Don't ask leading questions. So is that chest pain like a stabbing type pain? No. Could you describe to me how your chest feels? That's what you do. You don't ask leading questions. Don't uh, interrupt him. Don't do that. Don't don't ask why. Why are you waiting until two o'clock in the morning to call me? <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. So why is it there's four cars in the driveway, eight adults in the house, but you got to call me? <laughs> don't don't do that. Yeah. Um, it says, it says um, again, it says you shouldn't speak in professional jargon either. Now, that might be true. A lot of times it is true, but sometimes it's not. Know your audience. If you're dealing with a patient that's medically trained, of course, you, if you don't use medical jargon, that's going to make them uncomfortable, right? So know your audience and speak their language. If it's a little kid, it's not an abrasion. It's a what? Know your audience. Make them feel comfortable. Uh, Family, friends, and bystanders, they usually will be valuable to some extent. Um, But if they're not valuable to to you and your assessment, don't be afraid to get shed of them. All right? Do it politely. But if they're making your situation worse or the patient's situation worse, they've got to go. Simple as that. And there's a certain technique to looking at a grown man and telling him he's got to get somewhere. And we, and that, oh, and it's his house, by the way. Because he's going to tell you real quick, that's my house. Okay, I understand that. But you got to get up out of this room. So... There's a way to do that, and there's a way not to do that, by the way. But don't be afraid to ask others to step aside. You may need to decide if having family and friends nearby will make the patient more or less anxious. If they're complicating the problem, they they need to go somewhere else. And if they act like they don't want to, you know who to call. All right, the golden rules. Who taught you the golden rules? Parents. Whoever raised you, hopefully, right? Some folks ain't got no upbringing, though, do they? All right, the golden rules. Practices that help calm and reassure patients include 
Make and keep eye contact at all times. If somebody won't look at you in your eyes, can't trust them, can you? He answered that quick. Nope. Make and keep eye contact. Tell the patient the truth. Always tell the truth. But there's a way to do that. Speak slowly, clearly, and distinctly. Treat folks how you want to be treated, right? Um, And I don't know anybody that wants to be treated with disrespect. Now, there's going to be folks out there that you're just not going to feel like they deserve respect, but you don't know what, what shoes they're walking in. So always treat them with respect. Diffuse situations by staying calm. If they're amped up, animated, or whatever, that's extra reasons for you to remain calm, which is going to be a little difficult sometimes. Talk openly and honestly. Always consider scene safety, your safety. And if you need backup, then you need to get them there. Communicating with older patients. Are all old folks blind and deaf? No. And if you get to speaking really loud and violating some of them proximic rules to a little old lady, she's going to let you know. So don't assume that. Uh, but um, be especially vigilant for objective changes when possible. Give patients time to pack personal items. If they have hearing aids, it's important that you help them find them. That's going to aid in their ability to communicate. It's going to lessen some of their anxiety. If they have glasses, help them find them. Get the slippers, whatever they need. Okay? Now, when when is that right there not a terribly great idea? When is it not a good idea to allow somebody to, I guess, move freely unattended through their own home? If they, if maybe if they've made threats, maybe against you or themselves, you do not leave those folks unattended. Communicating with children, emergency situations are very frightening, and the kids are scared too. Fear is most obvious and severe in children. Especially at certain ages, you know, we'll talk about uh, growth and development, and I think it's chapter six actually. Um, but there's a certain age with kids where the whole stranger danger thing kicks in, right? If they don't know you, they don't want no part of you. So, um, Some kids are like that. yeah, that's true. Children may be frightened by your uniform. The ambulance may scare them, or just a group of strange people in their home in and of itself is going to make them uneasy. So if there's little things that you could do to begin with, mother, father, grandparents, whoever the caregiver is, don't, don't even try to separate them unless their patient care requires it. Okay? Other than that, let them sit in their lap. Now, everybody's properly restrained in the back of the ambulance, but closer you can let them stay to the ones that they have bonded with, the ones that they love, the better off you're going to be. Maybe let them keep a toy, a doll, a security blanket, whatever the case may be. Be honest. Tell the child ahead of time if something will hurt. If you're going to sneak an IV in on them and tell them it ain't going to hurt, you better get it and don't lose it, right? Because that second attempt is not coming. I promise you. <laughs> Respect the child's modesty. Uh, speak in a professional, friendly way. Maintain eye contact. And position yourself at the child's level. You don't want to tower over anybody, whether it's a child, whether it's an elderly patient whether it's a 20-year-old whatever. 
And as a general rule, you don't tower over anybody while doing your patient assessment. So now what if you pull up and the child's laying in the floor? Justin, if it's a 40-year-old man, I don't want you laying in the floor with him, all right? I'm talking about kids. Stay at their level, eye level. Now, and you'll just see it for yourself, but now there's, you, you temper all things that I tell you with common sense, too. But for taking this test, eye level. If they're in the floor, you get in the floor. That may not be the safest thing for you, depending on the situation. I don't know. But... Towering over somebody tends to make them nervous. That's the point you need to know. Communicating with hearing impaired patients. Most hearing impaired patients have normal intelligence. Just because they can't hear you don't mean they don't. They just can't hear. Let them see your lips. If they have hearing aids, help them find them. But if all else fails, what can you do? Pen and paper. Have paper and pen available if the patient can read lips, face them, speak slowly. And if they're deaf, they can't hear you no matter how loud you shout. Might want to learn some sign language. What does that say? What does that say? What does that say? Yeah. Visually impaired. We're communicating with the visually impaired now. Ask the patient if he or she can see it all. Um, they may not be completely blind, but uh, again, just because they can't see don't, don't mean they're not of normal intelligence. They just can't see. And make sure you're explaining everything. And this is definitely one, especially like if you're walking to the ambulance where touch is probably very appropriate, just put their hand on your shoulder as you walk to the ambulance. Stay in physical contact. Uh, if a patient can walk to the ambulance, place his or her hand on your arm, arm or shoulder, whichever. And mobility aids such as canes, take to the hospital. What's something else that a visually impaired person may have with them that you would want to take to the hospital? A guide dog. Yep. So you're going to put a nasty dog in the back of the ambulance. Absolutely. These types of dogs. Now, again, your safety trumps everything, right? But if a dog is properly trained and, and, and truly a service animal, that dog is not going to be a danger to you at all. Um, but again, once they start growling or whatever, then all bets are off. Because your, your safety trumps all that. But if you have to leave the animal for whatever reason, you need to take steps to secure that animal. Because what's, what's the visually impaired person thinking once the dog gets left behind? They instantly become very apprehensive, right? You need to calm the dog and the and the person. See, why would you calm the dog in that situation? If it's a properly trained dog, you ain't got to worry about the dog. You got to worry about the person. Easily identified with special harnesses. Uh, if possible, transport the dog with the patient. It alleviates stress for the patient and the dog. Otherwise, make absolutely sure you're, you're making arrangements for the care of the dog. This dog is that person's lifeline. Communicating with non-English speaking patients. Again, in Georgia right about now, what language are we talking about? Spanish. Spanish. It's not a social commentary and it's not a political debate. But if you're going to work in emergency services, you should know some Spanish. You should at least know the basics. Because um, you've got the job to do. All right? 
Now, typically, in reality, if there's a group of people in the home, at least one of them is going to speak some English. Find you a translator, if at all possible. But if none of them, and it might even be the kid. It might, it's likely that it'll be the kid, as a matter of fact. But um, not always the case. But if no one in the group speaks English and you can't find a translator, what can you always do? If you can't write Spanish, so the, that pen and paper don't work. Pull up an app, use your phone, or you get on your radio and call the dispatch center and ask them to access the language line. That's the service that's available to your dispatcher. Basically, you key the mic, they say something, you unkeyed, and somebody on the other end will tell you what they say, and vice versa. It's the language line. Yep. Few short, simple questions. Uh, point to parts of the body. Have a family or friend interpret. I learned what mucho dolor means just through common sense. I ran a car wreck. I was 16. And Buddy ate the steering wheel. He just, he right on his chest. When I got there, that's all he could say. But he's pointing his chest. Saying, mucho dolor. Mucho dolor. That means it hurts a lot. See, consider learning some common phrases. In another language, we used to have, you also have some, sometimes these little pocket guides for translation or whatever. Might want to be careful with some of them, but they're there. Special needs patients, do not overlook the needs of people with communication disorders. Um, again, touch and eye contact are helpful bridging mechanisms, but be careful. And again, family members are going to go a very long way in helping you communicate and find out what's really going on with some of these special need patients. Communicating with other healthcare professionals. Now, there's a group of animals right there. Your reporting responsibilities do not end when you arrive at the hospital. When you're en route to the hospital, you're going to give a verbal report over the radio. You're going to tell the hospital uh, age, sex of your patient, what their chief complaint is, the, the things that you discovered during your assessment, what they told you, what you saw, whatever, what you felt, listened to, whatever. Um, you're going to tell them their past pertinent medical history, what, what type of medical conditions do they have? What medicines do they take on a regular basis? Do they have any allergies to anything? Then you're going to tell them what you did and what were the results. Did the patient stay the same, get better, or get worse? And you're going to tell them how soon before you get to the hospital, the ETA. All that's going to be expressed verbally over the radio. But when you get to the hospital, you're going to have to pretty much repeat that. But what you're doing is you're face-to-face it now, and you also have the electronic version or the paper version or whatever. But the main thing you want to express there, too, is did anything change? Uh, this is what I told you. This has changed or there were no changes or, or whatever the case may be. Again, oral report components. Uh, opening information, that's probably the unit that you're on. Maybe you, your, your level of training, the unit that you're on, their name, chief complaint, um, detailed information uh, not provided during the radio report. Anything that you overlook during the radio report, be sure you give it to them. Uh, any important history not already provided, patient's response, vital signs, anything else. Y'all stretch yourself for a couple minutes. Those that were outside smoking, you missed some good music. All right. Base stations and mobile radios. Basically, base stations are the radios in the stations, and then the mobile radios, guess where they're at? They're mounted in your vehicle, and they're mobile. Okay? A base station radio is any radio hardware containing a transmitter and a receiver in a fixed place. 
Mobile radios are obviously installed into a vehicle and used to communicate with dispatch or medical control. You can dis you can communicate with other people as well, I guess, but those are the main ones you're wanting to communicate with. Portable radios, those are the ones that you carry with you. Handheld devices. Again, you, you're going to just communicate with, with the same people you would on a mobile or base station. It's just in your hand. It's with you. <clears throat> Repeater-based systems or special base station radio that receives messages or signals on one frequency and automatically retransmits on a second higher frequency. Okay, a little, a little bit of a stronger frequency too. Thing to, to keep in mind about repeater-based systems. There's two reasons, especially if you own a repeater-based system. You key that mic and you're about to talk. You need to pause for a second. One, to think about what you're about to say. What's that? You know, you can remain silent and make them think you're smart or special, or you can open your mouth and remove all doubt. Be real special. Think about what you're saying, but take that extra second, especially on the repeater base, because you'll clip yourself. If you just key the mic and instantly start talking, it's got. To, it doesn't take long, but it takes a, a short period of time to where it, it sends that signal or receives on that one frequency then hops it to that other frequency so it can be transmitted further. It takes a split second to do that. So key the mic and just pause for a quick, quick second. All right. Digital equipment, uh, transmitted electrocardiograms from one unit to the hospital. That's biotelemetry. That's when you put the, they put the cardiac monitors on the chest of the patient. Run a 12 lead, hit the transmit button, and it travels uh, digitally to the hospital so they can see what's going on with the cardiac conduction system of that patient. AEMTs often communicate uh, by cellular phone. Um, some ambulances have phones mounted on the walls in, in the back. Um, they have radios, but cellular service, it's a wonderful thing till it ain't, right? You could have the best equipment in the world, but if you ain't getting that signal, if you're way back in the stick somewhere, it, it might not be that dependable. It just goes back to what, what I've already told you multiple times. You have to know what equipment you have and the limitations of that equipment. Respect privacy, always speak in a professional manner. Ambulances usually have external public address systems. What am I talking about? PAs, public address, right? When would you use them? Do I? Big group of people. Yeah, <laughs> that, that ain't going to work. That's kind of where I'm going with this. They're there, but be careful. If you're over the radio, tell them what a nice guy they are or tell them they're number one out the window. You got to remember, you riding around with a billboard, right? They know how to find you. So Use it as a tool because it is a tool. It's, it's a communication tool, but just make sure you're using it appropriately. Med channels, those are um, radios that are usually in the back, especially the, the like the Piedmonts, the Grady's, and some of the other uh, hospitals up in the Atlanta proper used the med channels. But you have to know what hospitals on what med channel and all that jazz. Uh, so a lot of people have kind of gone away from that, but just know that a med channel is reserved for EMS use, but that's kind of common sense. Trunking systems uh, use the latest technology to allow gr for greater traffic on the same frequencies. It's also harder to scan your neighbors. It's harder to, for them to scan and listen to your stuff as well. 
Mobile Data Terminals, MDTs, MCTs, whatever you call them. These are the computers that are inside your apparatus. They receive data directly from the dispatch center, um, and they also allow for expanded communication capabilities. It shows you maps. You can scan and download pre-fire plans if you want to. Uh, if you've been to this address five other times in the last year, and maybe there was a, a dangerous situation, big dog in the front yard, whatever, that the computer will tell you that. Now, but be careful, because something else you can do with these things is you can get on your MCT, MDT, whatever you call it, and you can type a little note to other people that may be responding to the same call. But those notes are What does that mean? That means lawyers know they're there and they have access to them. They are discoverable. So if you own their typing stuff that you don't want people to know, you better stop. Or just don't start. That's that expanded communication capability. The maps, and like I said, you can communicate, type in little messages back and forth to other apparatus, but make sure you be, make sure, you know, a slide earlier said always speak professionally. Well, even if it's the typed word, be, be professional because it is discoverable and it could get you in trouble. Who's FCC? Now who are they? What do they do? They regulate, they regulate all radio operations in the United States. They're the ones that give us our radio frequencies, our, our license, uh, if you have base stations. Assigning call signs. Now, this is a little bit of an outdated concept. For, for years and years and years in Coweta, I used to always hear, and G did too, what, what did they say at the end of every call? You remember the call signs for Coweta Fire? Call signs. They dispatch a call, and then the dispatcher would say, time out of this office, 2100 hours, KYL 687. Heard that forever and a day. KYL 687. That was that dispatcher identifying that frequency in the agency that was using it to Big Brother, FCC, because they're always listening. You don't really have call signs anymore. You, at one point in time, and I know um, over in Fayette County, I don't know about Fayetteville, but in Fayette County, you used to hear this little sound occasionally. It almost sounded like Morse code coming over the radio. And that was telling Big Brother who was on there. But now it's it's done, and you you, you don't even hear it. It's transmitted, and you can't even hear it with, a, with the human ear. Might be making dogs crazy. I don't know, but we can't hear it. But that's what call signs were. KYL687. Um, FCC establishes licensing standards, operating specifications, limitations for transmitter output. They'd have to, you know, the, they have to look at, at neighboring agencies and not assign frequencies that are really close, right? I know mid 90s, we started getting telephone calls from somewhere down in Florida because they had a frequency that was really close to ours. And occasionally, if I guess the sun was a certain way or something, we would bleed over to that agency down there in Florida. And they'd call us Raising Cane. Because somebody finally gave them enough information, they figured out who we were. So they called me. What do you do? All EMS systems depend on the skill of the dispatcher. And that is true. And what can a dispatcher tell you? Okay. But can they tell you any more than they're told? They can't divine information, right? And I'm telling you, if you ever, ever get to thinking that dispatchers, and yeah, anybody could do that job, no big deal. They're not doing their job right, anything else. And 
you should run up to the dispatch center right in the middle of a thunderstorm and pay attention and watch them folks work. So um, that's my only point. People get aggravated with dispatchers over the radio. Dispatchers get aggravated back with us. But it's really there's really no sense in that. They can't disseminate information that they don't have. So just always keep that in mind. Um, again, the dispatchers, are, they're uh, signing appropriate response units. A lot of times the CAD program is doing that automatically for them, right? Computer-aided dispatch. Pre-loaded, predetermined apparatus that go to certain locations. But when they dispatch you, then they're still gathering information and they relay more information to you once you go in route. Yep. Yep. Something else they do, I mean, they're gathering information and relaying information to you too, but... Uh, EMD, Emergency Medical Dispatch, there's, a, there's another little training program that they'll go through and a program of, as a, actually a push button menu on their screen. If a patient says they're having chest pains, they can push the button that says chest pains and that gives them additional and different questions to ask that patient, but it also gives them pre-arrival instructions, things that they can relay back to the caller to kind of help them out until we get there. So, so it kind of goes both ways. <coughs> it says communicating during transport. Again, it says you're going to communicate with the receiving hospital. Let them know what you have. Um, but now, if you once you get dispatched, if you get dispatched to something that you know might produce a large amount of patients or some particularly bad patients. There's nothing wrong with picking up your radio, picking up your phone or whatever, and calling the hospital while you're still en route to the call. As much heads up as, as you can give them, the better prepared they're going to be to accept your patient when you get there. So, just something to keep in mind. Right, calling medical control over the radio, what type of medical control is that? Call them right on the radio. That is, that's direct or online. Okay. Consulting with medical control, notifies hospitals of incoming patients, provides opportunity to request advice or orders. There you go. That's what I was saying earlier. Plan and organize your radio communication before you transmit. Think about what you're going to say before you say it. Deliver your patient report in an objective, accurate, and professional manner. And people with scanners are listening. Not maybe listening. They are listening. So you want to make absolutely sure you don't give out any of that protected health information, right? Nothing that's a personal identifier. You don't want to say anything other than... 28-year-old female, 56-year-old male, complaining of whatever, but nothing that's going to identify that person personally because people are listening. Depending on how your protocols are written, you may need to call medical control for permission. You might have to get that online medical control before you give certain meds before you uh, make a, uh, I guess, a destination choice as far as your transportation goes. Just forget that right there. I'm telling you now, you call, we haul. You go to the hospital. You don't need to be trying to determine whether or not to transport or not. As far as you're concerned, if you're on scene in that ambulance and they've called you, you need to take them to a doctor. Now, they, if they're conscious, confident adult, they may decide not to go with you. But as far as you're concerned, it's not in question. They called you. We're going to the hospital. It's just the second leg of the trip. That's all it is. I already said all that. All right. We, we did away with the 10 codes. 
Who knows? When I say ten code signals, who knows what I'm talking about? Things just jargon or language that we would use uh, on the radio, uh, but that's gone, right? We speak in plain language now. Some people still use them. Yeah, copy that. Yeah. Uh, if you do something for twenty some odd years, it's kind of hard to kind of break that right off the bat. But why did we go away from the the ten codes and the signals and all that? And why did we go to plain language? When was it legally mandated that we go away from? When did the federal government say we will not use ten codes anymore? Presidential Directive Number Five that was signed right after nine eleven. That's right. Let's see. Once you receive, well, we're not using codes. Once you receive an order, repeat it back. Why? What's that communications model? Shannon Weaver. Shannon Weaver. Because that's feedback, right? And anything that does away from the original message, we call what? Do not blindly follow an order that does not make sense. Ask them to repeat. Ask for clarification. Listen, advise hospital special situations such as hazmat. If you bring a contaminated person to the emergency room with a, some sort of chemical, you have shut down the emergency room. They will lock it down and nobody else can get in, nobody can get out. So you might want to let them know because all hospitals will have a little decon room right outside for these purposes. Uh, again, rescues in progress. If you've got something with multiple casualty incidents, multiple patients, or particularly bad off patients, as soon as you can let them know, as much notice as you can give them, the better off the patient's going to be and the better prepared they're going to be when you get there to accept the patient. The earlier, the better. Use your system effectively. Using standard operations is going to refute, uh, reduce misunderstandings. Always keep transmissions brief. Radio discipline, right? You need to say what you need to say, then get off of the radio. The radio is your lifeline. Take care of it. Alright, it says here at the beginning of your shift, check your radio equipment. Now, we're talking electronics, right? Is there really new or old? Does new or old really even matter with electronics? It's just good or bad, right? But just because it was good that morning is no guarantee that it's going to be good that evening. So, I'm not saying you have to constantly check your radio, but just understand because it was, because it was working for yesterday's shift, does not mean it's going to work for you. You need to check it. <clears throat> Patient care reports. We talked about the, the EPCRs because most people uh, have it in electronic format now. It is a legal document. And if you misrepresent the truth on a legal document, that could cause you trouble. There is a minimum data set that the state and federal governments require on these EPCRs <coughs> and things like uh, the time you uh, the dispatch center received the call or the type time that they dispatched you the time you went in route how long it took you to get there when did you leave the scene and head to the hospital when did you get to the hospital all these times these things are part of that minimum data set that was going to be on every one of them. Uh, but your PCR serves six functions. Continuity of care. That's back to that blood, uh, blood sugar example I gave you. They see what you did and they can build on what you did and the person after them because that patient record goes with that patient no matter where they're at. Used for education. It's used for research, quality control purposes. Administrative information. 
The patient care report is going to complain. Uh, oh, they have the that minimum data set I told you about, but then it's going to talk about the chief complaint, their level of consciousness or mental status, vital signs, your initial assessment, patient demographics. Um, you're going to have addresses. You're going to have insurance information, things of that nature for the billing department as well. Again, paper, electronic. It's going to talk about the time of the event. If, if you administered sublingual nitroglycerin, if you administered aspirin, you did all these things for a patient, you're going to document the time that you gave it to them. If they refuse any care, it'll be documented. And again, objective, not subjective. Those are two words when you talk about documentation. You don't ever need to forget. Objective and subjective. Which one gets you in trouble? Subjective. Yeah, because that's your opinion, right? That's what you think. The lawyers care about what you think. No. They just just the facts, ma'am, right? What show was that? But um do not record conclusions or judgment. Patient was drunk. Is that subjective or objective? Subjective. Patient spoke with slurred speech, walked with an unsteady gait. Is that objective or subjective? That's a fact. That's not your opinion that he failed three times and giggled about it each time. I mean, that's that's not that's not your opinion. And look, PCRs are confidential. That's that HIPAA, protected health information, big time there. All right, reporting errors. I don't know if you can see um, what, what's happened here, but um, it's important to keep in mind, and, and like I told you last class, lawyers love cover-ups, right, or anything that could be construed as a cover-up. If you make a mistake, you need to be very upfront and honest about it. Um, even if it's a mistake in documentation. If you say, uh, patient uh, has a fracture to the left arm. Alright, that's a very technical statement there. But patient has a fracture to the left arm. But it was the right arm. Do you want to come in here and go, what does that imply? You're hiding something, right? And that lawyer wants to know what you hide. They're going to start digging. So, basically, and this is, and again, you need to know this for the test because, again, when you get out there and start working, I'm trying to think of an ambulance service that has paper PCRs anymore. I'm sure they're out there, but I'm not familiar with them. The patient has fracture to, we said, left arm, right? And that's incorrect. It was the right arm. So what you want to do is do a single line, an initial, and then write the correct information there or even up here if you don't have room. Single line through it, initial it, and write the correct information. That's transparent, right? You can see everything. I've initialed it. And if you have, if you ever, ever go back and change at a later date, make always sure you use different color ink. Again, it, for the paper PCRs. If you're going back and making a supplemental report on a computer, that computer logs the time and date and all that that you're on there. So... If you think you hide something by going back and changing something in the digital format, I don't know. Anyhow. Recorded, uh, don't try to cover anything up. You know, again, falsification causes poor patient care, suspension, legal action, what have you. Just tell the truth. 
Alright. Refusal of care. Very first line. A common source of lawsuits. Refusals of care. Common source of lawsuits. I can tell you in the Midwest Georgia, the, the uh, 10 counties that make up Region 4 EMS, the last two program directors, so I'm talking about for the last 28 years, there's been two guys that's been over it, and they both told me that the only people in our region that has truly gotten in trouble on these calls are those that left people behind. Take them to the hospital. I'm just telling you, take them to the hospital. Um, why do you think refusals of care is a common source of lawsuits? What do you think that is? He said, she said. Somebody there's suffers some damages or whatever by not going to the hospital. Or they show up and said, he, he didn't even offer to take me to the hospital. As a matter of fact, he told me he wasn't going to take me to the hospital. And you didn't get that signature. Then it's their word against yours. And they got the cousin-in-law and next-door neighbor and everybody else standing there saying, yeah, that's right. So... Properly, again, the best thing is you call, we haul. Take them to the hospital. But if they're conscious, competent, and an adult, and they don't want to go, and you explain to them why they should go, and they still don't want to go, you properly document, and you get them to sign the refusal. And then get a witness to sign a refusal. A witness to sign saying that they witnessed them sign the refusal. Stepping on my tongue, but do y'all understand what I'm saying? If you don't get the refusal, they can claim anything they want. And you can't prove them wrong. Alright, special reporting situations, things you have to notify the law about. Gunshot wounds, dog bites, some infectious diseases. Abuse or neglect of any form has to be reported. Any mass casualty incident. Alright. This kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier. Just know your audience. A lot of medical terms are based in Latin. Some of it's in Greek. And in summary, we said all that. Alright, question number one. When healthcare providers force their cultural values onto the patients because they believe their values are better, they are displaying A, ethnocentrism, B, proxemics, C, nonverbal communication, or D, cultural imposition. Yeah, that's the cultural imposition when you force them. All right, number two. When communicating with an elderly patient, you should A, approach the patient slowly and calmly, 